You're listening to The Herald, normally recorded by volunteers at the Bishop Briggs Media Centre, currently being recorded from homes across Greater Glasgow. Please enjoy this week's articles. Recorded from The Herald, 24th of August 2020. Anna Shackley targeting Commonwealth and Olympic Games after signing SD Works cycling deal. Graham McPherson. The chemistry degree is going to have to wait a while. Anna Shackley may get around to taking up her place at Glasgow University one day, but for now she has more pressing matters to attend. The Mulgai cyclist career trajectory has been as steep as some of the mountain climbs she wants to conquer in the years ahead. The last three years have seen the 19-year-old progress from Scottish Cycling's Junior Development Programme to a place in the GB Senior Academy team in Manchester. Along the way, she has proved to be comfortable mixing junior races with occasional forays into senior level. At last year's Women's Tour of Scotland, she claimed a credible 13th place, a feat that made her the top British rider in the field. Even when competitive racing hasn't been possible in recent months, Shackley still found a way to progress. Signing a two-year deal to join the Dutch-based SD Work cycling team, currently known as Boel Dolmans, early in 2021, will allow her to fulfil her dream of competing in the Women's World Tour. Beyond that, she already had, has one eye on representing Scotland at the 2022 Commonwealth Games, while an Olympic appearance remains another aspiration. Little wonder, with all that going on, she feels confident enough to focus all her attention on cycling for the time being. My long-term goals are to podium in the highly classic races, as I love the climbing aspect of cycling, she said, and it's also been a dream of mine to compete in the Olympics and the Commonwealth Games, so those are things I'd love to do one day. I deferred my place at Glasgow Uni last year for chemistry, and I'm trying to do the same again for this year. If I can't do that, I'll definitely reapply to do it later on in my career. But at the moment, I want to fully commit to cycling for the next few years. You can go to uni at any age, but with cycling, you'll have to retire eventually. So I need to give it everything to cycling while I can. Shackley will enjoy some illustrious company at SD Works, with future teammates set to include Olympic champion Anna van der Bregen and world champion Chantelle van der Broekblak. The former Glasgow rider cyclist sounds genuinely shocked to have been asked and didn't have to take long to think about it, even if it will mean leaving the GB Academy at the end of the year. This was really a surprise getting that contract, she added. I'd always wanted to go to the World Tour, but I just didn't expect it to be next year. My coach used to be part of the team and they approached her looking for riders. She put a few of us forward and they looked at my power files and my training and asked me, and it was quite an easy decision for me to make. This ticks all the boxes. I'm really looking forward to getting stuck into some world tour races and it'll be great to pick the brains of the other riders with all their experience. It will be a bit daunting as I'll be one of the youngest in the team but I'm more excited to get over there and start doing some big races. I'll be off the academy programme next year but I'm hoping to keep a few ties there. She already has received some valuable pointers closer to home from fellow Mulgai cyclist Katie Archibald, the Olympic World European and Commonwealth champion. I did a few races with Katie last year and she's someone I've looked up to, admitted Shackley. She's got so much experience and is willing to chat about everything. She's very open and very easy to talk to and I found that a big help. A year that began with Shackley becoming a two-time British champion on the track 
will get going again this week when she competes for the British under-23 team in the UAC Road European Championships in Plou, France. It'll be good to just get back into racing, she said. I feel that there's not too much pressure on me because technically it's my first road race of the season. I'm just excited to get back into it. I had been looking forward to the start of the race season earlier in the year as we'd been out in Belgium before lockdown happened. But I've actually enjoyed the last few months. I've never had this long a training block before without interruptions for races and other things. So I've noticed a big improvement over the summer. But it'll be great just getting back on the bike again. Herald Scotland recorded on Monday 24th of August 2020. Books, Cooped Up in a Cabin, Summer Water by Sarah Moss. Summer Water, Sarah Moss, Picador, £14.99, review by Andrew Meehan. Edward Thomas, in his 1916 poem It Rains, writes of the wild rain on this bleak hut and solitude in me, remembering again that I shall die, and neither hear the rain nor give it thanks for washing me cleaner than I have been. Summer Water, Sarah Mossy's new novel, her seventh, takes place at midsummer in a Scottish cabin park. It rains there too, and the thinking is, as wild as in any war poem, Summer Water is lighter in its feet, but no less anxious than Mossy's 2018 masterpiece, Ghost Wall. Good stories grow up anywhere, and these characters are cooped up in their cabins, wary of their neighbours and awkward with themselves. Do holidays imply peace of mind? Well, Summer Water begins with Justine, who runs early in the morning while the rest of her family are still asleep. At the start of the book, she's considering where to go. If she runs as long as she wants to, she might have to snack later, and if she snacks, the children will want to do the same. Then she remembers she's got four protein bars stuck into her packet of sanitary towels in the suitcase, the only place no one else is likely to look, and she's not too proud to eat them in the bathroom if she has to. But it's an aside, but in this book, nothing feels like an aside. This is a subtle but significant scene in which Moss takes us into her confidence. When it comes to the workings of the secret heart and the exchange between mind and body, this is a writer with few equals. Brackets, I'm thinking of Anne Enright and Han Kang and not many others. Close brackets. Here we have the normalcy and the lunacy of Brits on holiday. When Claire gets an hour to herself, she tries to lick the hair on her nipples. There is Melly who, in the build-up to Project Simultaneous Orgasm, wonders about bread for sandwiches. Quite a feat, when you think of it, to be even considering sex in a Scottish cabin park in the rain. David, the retired doctor, knows the road by the loch as well as he knows the human body, and Moss is just as good in the body, childbirth, say, as she is in teenagers or slugs. Though she's quite superb in slugs, things shouldn't be made like that. Spores drift up from the pages and you start to feel another presence entirely. Alongside holidaymakers in repose and distress are short chapters told from inside an anthill or from the point of view of a doe. Then these spectral fears dissolve into a character's annoyance with the crust in a baking tray. Not until rather late in the day does something happen to disturb this equilibrium. There hasn't seemed to be any plan, but there is always a plan and by now Moss has done all the work she needs to do. This is a writer in whose gifts we trust, and she pulls off feet after feet of daring and empathy and wisdom. Justine, whose thoughts on running might be mistaken for Moss's own considerations in the writing process, completes marathons in private, and Moss's sentences run on too. You hear them long after you read them, 
thought and feeling dissolving with animal grace, and even as you delight in them, her paragraphs swing off and away, bound for the horizon, only to be found by the side of the road bent double, not in exhaustion, but in the study of an object in close quarters, just as we do when we remember what's so revelatory about Scotland in the rain, by Andrew Meehan. The Herald, Monday the 24th of August 2020. News. Face coverings to be brought in for secondary schools on limited basis. This article is by Tom Gordon. The Scottish Government is set to introduce a limited form of face coverings in secondary schools. Nicola Sturgeon said the Government expected to recommend coverings in corridors and other communal areas, but not in classrooms. She said Education Secretary John Swinney was in the final stage of consulting with unions and councils on the matter. It follows the World Health Organisation recommending face coverings in schools for over 12s at the weekend. The change is expected to be agreed at today's Education Recovery Group with detailed guidance issued tomorrow. Ms Sturgeon said, I can confirm that the Education Secretary is in the final stages of consulting with teachers and local authorities on a recommendation for the use of face coverings by staff and pupils in secondary schools when they are moving around in corridors and communal areas. We are consulting on this specific measure because mixing between different groups is more likely in corridors and communal areas, increasing the potential for transmission. Crowding and close contact in these areas is more likely and voices could be raised, resulting in greater potential for creating aerosol transmission. And finally, there is often less scope for effective ventilation in these areas. So this is a position of which we conclude it is we expect to do that would reflect and actually go slightly beyond current WHO guidance. We are also considering the position on school transport and we will set out our conclusion in the next few days. We are not currently consulting on any proposals to wear face coverings in the classroom. That is because there is greater scope for physical distancing in the classroom and face coverings are more likely to interfere with teaching. I would emphasise, however, that there are outbreaks. It remains an option for incident management teams to recommend more extensive use of face coverings if they believe in a particular area that is required for a period to protect public health and reduce the risk of transmission. James Gillespie High School in Edinburgh, Granton Grammar School in Greytown on Spey and Milburn Academy in Inverness have independently said masks need to be worn between classes. At the daily briefing, Ms Sturgeon also announced another 66 positive cases of coronavirus overnight, 14 in NHS Tayside, 17 in NHS Lanarkshire, 15 in NHS Greater Glasgow and Clyde and 5 in NHS Grampian. There were no deaths overnight. Scotland's largest teaching union welcomed the move on face coverings. EIS General Secretary Larry Flanagan said the EIS continues to believe that effective physical distancing is the best means of reducing the COVID-19 spread in schools. We are continuing to press the Scottish Government for more staff and smaller classes to achieve this. We note the WHO advice on face coverings for those aged 12 and over where one metre distancing can't be maintained. In situations where physical distancing is difficult, for example, in busy corridors when pupils are moving between classes, use of face coverings becomes more important and we welcome the current Scottish Government's consultation on this issue. However, the Us for Them parent group warned against mandatory face coverings in schools. 
Joe Bissett, organiser for Us For Them Scotland, said everyone appreciates the health and safety of pupils and teachers has to be a priority, but forcing children to wear masks when there's little of any scientific evidence to support such a move could be hugely damaging. It could have an extremely negative impact on pupils with autism, hearing impairments and conditions such as asthma. We also have to consider those children from unstable households who simply won't be sent to school with any mask, let alone one that is safe and effective. Parents want to get their children back to school and for that experience to be as normal as it possibly can be. Forced wearing of masks in the classroom or when moving about the building would not achieve any sense of normality for children who endured quite enough in recent months. Parents want the Scottish Government and councils to rule out this move now so they can get on with assisting their children back into the school routine. Scottish Liberal Democrat leader Willie Rennie said, This change of policy is the right thing to do and will provide an extra barrier of protection from the virus and reassurance to staff, pupils and parents. The reality on the ground in Scotland schools was outpacing the government's policy and with the World Health Organization recommending face coverings between classes and in other parts of the school estate, this move is the right one. Green MSP Ross Greer said, I am pleased that the Scottish Government is finally moving to encourage the wearing of face coverings in schools. The Greens first proposed this in June and consistently pressed the government over the summer to strengthen their guidance, including last week at First Minister's questions. There is clear evidence that face coverings significantly reduce transmission of the virus, so it is disappointing that it's taken the government so long to hear teachers' concerns rather than make this inevitable change before schools reopened. I am confused as to why the First Minister thinks masks should be worn in corridors, but not classrooms, though. She can't have spent much time in high schools recently if she thinks social distancing is going on in classes of 20 to 30 teenagers, where the classrooms are no bigger than they were in March. This article is by Tom Gordon. Recorded from The Herald, 24th of August 2020. Scottish transferred news as it happened. Celtic set to land David Turnbull, Rangers look to offload Morellis and Ryan Kent to Leeds' latest. Aidan Smith, from the 24th of August. 10.26am. Good morning everyone and welcome to today's transfer blog. Stick around and we'll bring you the latest news and gossip as soon as we get it. 10.28am. Celtic are set to land Motherwell star David Turnbull in a £3 million deal this week, according to reports. The Hoops have been long-time admirers of the Scotland youngster and had a deal in place for his signature last summer. But after a knee issue was discovered during his medical, the deal collapsed and he was rushed into surgery. Neil Lennon has retained his interest in the midfielder since though, and the Scottish Sun report today that a deal is expected to be completed this week. Read the full story here. 10.39am. Rangers are hopeful of reopening talks with Lily regarding a possible transfer for striker Alfredo Morelis, according to reports. The Colombian frontman was left out of the light blue squad as they defeated Kilmarnock at the weekend and Steven Gerrard revealed that his star man was not in the right frame of mind for the match. Read the full story here. 11.12am. Leeds United are expected to renew their interest in Ryan Kent by offering £14 million for the Rangers winger. The Scottish Sun also reports that the Premier League club will also offer to double the winger's wages. It is thought that Leeds bid £10 million for Kent last week. 12.18pm 
Shane Duffy has got Celtic fans talking after posting a picture from a plane on his Instagram story. The Brighton defender has been linked with the hoops this summer as Neil Lennon looks to add to his defensive options. 1.22pm Martin have former Boston United fullback Carl Byrne on trial. The 24-year-old is the nephew of Stephen and Alan Quinn. David Hopkins will make a decision on the defender over the coming days. 1.55pm Former St Johnson midfielder Matt Butcher has joined Akron. Accrington Stanley on a two-year deal. The 23-year-old spent last season on loan at McDermott Park from Bournemouth. 2.44pm Rhys McCabe has joined Queen of the South after returning to Scotland with Brecon City last year. The former Rangers midfielder is one of six new arrivals at Palmerston as the Dunhammers gear up for the new season. Gregor Buchanan, Joe McKee, Connor Shields Dan Pybus and Tommy Goss are the other players who have linked up with Alan Johnson's side. 3pm. Hearts and Scotland defender John Souter is facing further surgery after snapping his Achilles tendon again. The 23-year-old last week suffered a relapse of the injury which forced him off on a stretcher during the Scottish Cup win over Rangers in February. Full story here. 3.20pm. Sir Rod Stewart has sent a personal plea to Celtic target Shane Duffy urging him to move to Parkhead. The Hoops daft rocker posted a picture of himself holding up a message to the Brighton defender on his Instagram. Read the full story here. 3.51pm An English Premier League club should come in for Celtic midfielder Tom Rodgick according to Australia assistant manager Rene Millenstein. The Socceroos International is attracting interest from Qatar with Celtic manager Neil Lennon last week stating he would see how the situation panned out but stressing the 27-year-old was a fantastic player. Read the full story here. 4.11pm That's unfortunately all we have time for today. We'll be back tomorrow with all the latest news and gossip from across Scotland. You are listening to The Hell Scotland, recorded on Monday the 24th of August 2020. Step forward, producer-in-chief, as the big show begins. An opinion article by Alison Rowett, senior politics and features writer. These are not the days for conventional political conventions, as anyone who saw the democratic event will agree. Still, What are the chances that this week's Republican get-together will end with Donald Trump hearing the words, You're rehired. The New York Times reported yesterday that the US President has hired two producers from The Apprentice to run the bash. A television show that propelled Mr Trump from minor New York celebrity to -to coast-to-coast recognition famously ends with losing candidates being told, You're fired. And the winner, you're hired. Given the president is running for a second time, some variation on a theme would be permissible. The Republican convention, like the Democrats' gathering, will be like nothing seen before. Such are the COVID-19 times. Stripped back to basics, the Democrats' virtual event took some getting used to. Gone was the sales conference meets Christmas party atmosphere of old, complete with pop music and balloons. 
Even the firework display looked as if it was trying hard to be modest. A stellar lineup of speakers, led by Michelle Obama and Slick Production, the Democrats hired Ricky Kirshner, the maestro behind the Super Bowl halftime show, still made it a television event that more than 20 million Americans watched each night. Joe Biden's speech was well received, even if he did not receive a big bump in the polls, and another $70 million was added to the party's coffers. Job done, everyone's happy. Will the Republicans be saying the same come Thursday night? Whatever happens, the event is not the one the party wanted. Organisers try to get as close to the convention norm as possible, but that plan was scrapped as the death toll from COVID-19 continued to soar. Instead, there will be a mix of in-person events, with an audience in Washington of no more than 50 people and speeches from the key players at various locations. On Thursday, the President will accept the nomination at the White House, defying critics who say the residence should not be used for party political purposes. The First Lady, Melania Trump, will take to the podium in the White House Rose Garden tomorrow, hoping to follow the success of Jill Biden, who filmed a video in the school in which she once taught. Kellyanne Conway, senior advisor to Mr Trump, has promised to move away from what she called the dour and sour mood of the Democratic National Convention. There has already been controversy over the guest spot given to lawyers Mark and Patricia McCloskey, the couple from St Louis who were pictured outside their mansion pointing guns at Black Lives Matter protesters in June. Mr Trump is expected to speak every night, and if his recent White House press conferences are any guide, Viewers should expect the unexpected. Not given to delivering tightly scripted addresses, the President could find himself wandering far off topic. Any overrunning will not go down well with television networks and viewers waiting for their shows to start. What a change it will be for a candidate who is at his happiest when he is speaking to his base in some vast auditorium. Gone will be the glory days of 2016, when Pat rallies cheered his every word and a penned press could be held up for the crowd's ridicule. How much atmosphere can even he generate before an audience of 50 people? His team need to avoid at all costs repeating the flop that was the Tulsa rally when a paltry 6,200 people turned up and the atmosphere fell flat. Come the fireworks display over the White House lawn on Thursday, certain things should be clearer. As with the Democrats, the party's general direction of travel will be apparent. The Democrats went for the centre ground, going heavy on the personal. Mr Biden's steadiness, decency, inclusiveness and light on policy. It was the most positive campaign launch since Barack Obama's 2008 run. It would be the mother and father of all convention surprises if the Republicans followed suit. Mr Trump has been trying out various lines for size. Accusing Mr Biden and his VP nominee Kamala Harris of being prisoners of the left. A heavy emphasis on law and order and protecting the suburbs is expected. 
But how personal can he be in attacking his opponents? This is not 2016 when he questioned the integrity of Hillary Clinton and encouraged his supporters to do the same. Voters may accept that from a candidate, but not a president. Perhaps the best the Republicans can expect from their unconventional convention is to get through it without any major gaffes. They can then start campaigning proper where it matters, on the ground. With most voters not turning their attention to the election until a couple of weeks before polling day, the conventions had already lost much of their impact. It still matters to get it right, though. Over to you, producer-in-chief Trump. Herald Scotland recorded on Tuesday 25th of August 2020. Arts and Entertainments. Nature Book, Vesper Flights by Helen MacDonald, by Teddy Jameson, Senior Features Writer. Vesper Flights, Helen MacDonald, Jonathan Cape, £16.99. Someone once told me that every writer has a subject that underlies everything they write. Helen MacDonald notes in the very first page of Vesper Flights. It can be love or death, betrayal or belonging, home or hope or exile. I choose to think that my subject is love, and most specifically love for the glittering world of non-human life around us. MacDonald made her name with her award-winning 2014 book H is for Hawk, a detailed account of her life with a goshawk called Mabel, which doubles as an essay on her grief for her father, all beautifully sustained over more than 280 pages. Vesper Flights, by contrast, is a gather-up of short, sharp essays, none more than 20 pages, many as brief as two or three, yet like its predecessor, it's full of treasures. Her essay, Storm, is a perfect example. Just three pages long, it begins in a drive on the M25 and takes in buildings, storm clouds, aeroplanes and a flock of parakeets, all in the first paragraph, before going on to her own memories. Brackets. I've measured all my summers by the storms, she writes, close brackets. The life cycle of a thunderstorm, her grandmother's terror of the blitz, brackets, and the echoes of it she heard in her every peal of thunder, close brackets. Agatha Christie, L.P. Hartley, Brexit, and Trump. That's a lot to cover in such a small space, and yet none of it feels forced. Time and again, MacDonald knits human experience to her fascination with the natural world. The title essay is about the otherness of Swifts, but it also takes in her own gothy tendencies, being bullied as a child, love and loss. And yet all of this is couched in scientific learning. It's never a case of MacDonald anthropomorphising the flora and fauna she views. Rather, she uses her experiences to remind us that we are not separate from the world. We're part of it, and we're responsible for it. This matters. The pleasures of Vesper Flights are the pleasures of any literature, the lucidity of thought, the sensual tactility of the words, brackets, MacDonald can make you feel the bristle of the beetles that catch in her hair on a summer night, close brackets, the comfort of the familiar and the thrill of the strange. But it is combined here with a real urgency, an awareness of our human imprint on the world and the damage that is doing. Literature can teach us the qualitative texture of the world, she also writes in her introduction, and we need it too. We need to communicate the value of things so that more of us might fight to save them. By Teddy Jameson. Recorded from the Herald, 25th of August 2020. 
Clark Delighted Lydon Dykes has chosen to play for Scotland. Author unknown. Steve Clark thinks that Lydon Dykes can be a valuable asset to the Scotland national team. Dykes could also have played for Australia, but chose to represent Scotland following conversations with former Kilmarnock manager Clark. Speaking about the call-up to Clyde One, Clark said, I spoke to him before the potential fixtures in March. He was very honest. He had the chance to play for Australia as well. The former Livingston man was signed by Queen's Park Rangers this summer. I hope he'll bring his talent, his enthusiasm and his ability to bring others into the game. He's got an eye for goal, Clark added. Thankfully, he is named in the squad. The Herald, Tuesday the 21st of August 2020, News. Number of abortions in Scotland, second highest ever after increase in 2019. This article is by Jamie Shuttleworth. The number of abortions carried out in Scotland reached the second highest on record last year, with the number of pregnancies ended by women in their 40s increasing to a new high. Official figures showed there were 13,583 terminations carried out in 2019, the highest total since 2008. They included 581 terminations in women who were aged 40 plus, the highest number ever in this age group since abortion became legal in 1967. Meanwhile, separate statistics showed Scotland's teenage pregnancy rate reached its lowest level since reporting began in 1994. Public Health Scotland figures also revealed the country's abortion rate increased to 13.2 terminations per 1,000 women aged between 15 and 44, up from 11.4 five years ago. The abortion rate for England and Wales was higher at 18.6 per 1,000 women in the same age group. Last year saw a very small rise in the number of young women choosing to end a pregnancy, with 1,834 terminations in those aged under 20, up from 1,829 in 2018. This was the first increase in abortions in this age group since 2007, Public Health Scotland said. More than half of all pregnancies that were terminated involved women in their 20s, with a total of 7,183 such procedures carried out on women in this age group, 3,929 on those aged between 20 to 24, and 3,254 on those aged between 25 and 29. Meanwhile, 2,460 terminations involved women between the ages of 30 and 34, with a further 1,525 involving those aged 35 to 39. Almost three quarters, 74.6% of all terminations last year, took place before the woman was nine weeks pregnant. Meanwhile, the number of teenage pregnancies has fallen from a total of 9,362 in 2007 to 4,114 in 2008, the most recent year for which figures are available. The teenage pregnancy rate has now fallen from 34 per 1,000 women in 2014 to 30 per 1,000 women in 2018, according to the figures. Meanwhile, between 1994 and 2018, the proportion of teenage pregnancies that ended in termination increased from around a third, 33.1%, to just under half, 46.5%. Public Health Minister Joe Fitzpatrick said, It's encouraging to see a fall in the rates of teenage pregnancy for the 11th successive year, with rates at their lowest level since reporting began in 1994. This reflects the dedicated work of education, health and community services in giving young people more choice, support and advice. The minister said he was particularly pleased that the gap in teenage pregnancy rates between the most and least deprived areas is narrowing too. 
He added, we are continuing work to implement our pregnancy and parenthood and young people strategy, focusing on supporting young people who are vulnerable to pregnancy in key areas including education and attainment, training and employment, and emphasising the importance of positive relationships to help them to achieve their potential as young people and as parents. We have also continued to roll out the Family Nurse Partnership Programme since 2010 to offer direct support to young first-time mothers and their families from pregnancy until their child reaches two. This article is by Jamie Shuttleworth. You are listening to The Health Scotland, recorded on Tuesday the 25th of August 2020. Issue of the day. Is the full stop reaching an endpoint? An article by Teddy Jameson, Senior Features Writer. Newspaper commentators and Twitter warriors are up in arms about reports that the full stop is under threat. The punctuation mark, it has been revealed, is seen as unnecessary and maybe even intimidating by younger people when it comes to social media conversations. Is this the end of the period? Let's get some context. How long has the full stop been around? In its current form, perhaps not as long as you think. The arrival of the printing press in the middle of the 15th century and the publication of Johann Gutenberg's Bible formalised punctuation in texts. Before that, it had an up-and-down existence. In the 3rd century BCE, a librarian called Aristophanes introduced dots on the page as pauses. But this was of no interest to the ancient Romans, who saw no need for spaces or punctuation in writing, mainly because writing was seen as something to be read aloud. It was early Christianity, which was devoted to the written word, that helped revive the idea of punctuation. In the 7th century, Isidore of Seville introduced his own system of dots to indicate pauses including the Destinio Finalis, to indicate an endpoint. Monks played around with punctuation over the following centuries until printing set the punctuation marks we know today in ink, as it were. So what's changed? Social media. Text messaging is short and succinct. It's often only a few words long and punctuation isn't really needed. Hitting send is now the equivalent to the full stop. As a result, for some younger users, it's now thought that when punctuation is used, they find it odd. Is this more snowflake behaviour? Have you been reading Jeremy Clarkson columns again? What in fact is happening is the evolution of written language in the face of new technological developments. When used in social media, the full stop has acquired extra layers of meaning. As it's not seen as necessary, its inclusion therefore implies or means more than just an end to a sentence. Linguists suggest that to the social media generation, it can be seen as abrupt, negative or even angry. The other interesting Twitter development is the use of the written words, full stop, to indicate that whatever precedes it settles an argument. In short, the humble period, as our North American brethren would have it, has become a tool in debate. Is anything taking the place of the full stop? 
Online, the use of the exclamation mark is increasingly more common as a form of emphasis. And of course, we are all using emojis now. So how long before the full stop disappears? Full stops in documents, letters, books or even in the very newspaper you're currently reading aren't going anywhere soon. They're still quite useful, unsurprisingly, and the connotations attached to them remain more neutral in print than they do online. In short, you can't stop using them. There's still life in the punctuation mark yet. Full stop. Herald Scotland recorded on Tuesday 25th of August 2020. Prog rock pioneer John Anderson finishes album he began 30 years ago by Gary Scott. By any standard, John Anderson's latest album has been a long time coming. The co-founder and former frontman of progressive rock titans Yes started work on A Thousand Hands 30 years ago during a writing retreat in the Big Bear Mountain Ski Resort in Southern California. Alongside his friend and long-standing collaborator Brian Chatton, he laid down some tracks, but life got in the way. Anderson went on tour with Japanese New Age pioneer Kitaro, while Chatton took off to play keyboard and organ for R&B greats like the late B.B. King. The tape spent decades gathering dust in Anderson's California garage. That was until two years ago, when he was contacted by Orlando-based producer Michael Franklin, who had secured an investment to complete the record. Life happens, Anderson chuckles from his home studio, surrounded by various synthesizers, drums, stringed instruments from around the globe. I promised to go and tour in America and Japan with Kitaro, so off I went while Brian went the other way to work with BB King and other people like that. He had an idea of how he wanted to hear the tracks, and he actually spent time and money working on it. He sent me the mixes and I said, Actually, Brian, it's a little bit too overproduced. Love you, man, but let's leave it for now. Anderson initially dubbed the project Uslot, meaning Uslot, in a droll reference to his Lancashire upbringing. Until Franklin suggested they change the name to A Thousand Hands, a nod to the number of artists who contributed to the record. He surprised me every week with new ideas. He was very dedicated to it, Anderson says in his quivering alto tenor voice, his accent only slightly softened by years of US living. We are connected to do chapter two and we have already done half a dozen songs. We're going to do some more in the new year and release that next Christmas. The title is no exaggeration. The record features an array of guests including jazz pianist Chick Corea, legendary drummer Billy Cobham, French jazz violinist Jean-Luc Ponty, the Tower of Power horn section and more. Most importantly, it also features recordings from Anderson's former Yes bandmates, drummer Alan White and bassist Chris Squire. This makes the album special indeed, following the death of Squire in 2015 from a rare form of leukaemia. We were like yin and yang, he recalls of his late partner. Like his music, conversation with Anderson darts from the technical to the spiritual and back again. For him, the two are intertwined. Around the same time as the record's inception, Anderson moved to America for good. I'd had enough of a few things, he recalls. Managers that don't take care of people. Managers who pretend to love what you're doing but have got no idea. He considered moving to southern China, but on one of his final trips to Los Angeles, met his second wife and muse, Jane Luttenberger. As a fate would have it, I came back to LA and I met this beautiful woman and fell in love and I've been seeing her in my meditation, my Janie. She's a busy lady, very smart, keeps me going and saves my life. 
I'm very blessed in that level. Anderson became a US citizen in 2009, but is the first to admit the country's flaws. America is a strange and crooked place. Crooked in many levels, he half-jokes. I've lived here 30 years. I'm an American citizen, so they can't kick me out of the country for saying that, he adds with a nervous laugh. Donald Trump is an idiot, he says, before asserting his support for the Black Lives Matter movement. He doesn't care, he says. He has no power of caring at all. Just to let you know where my heart is, it's with the people, with Black Lives Matter. The music of a thousand hands spans throwback prog rock in the form of Activate and Come Up, hypnotic rhythms on WDMCF and whimsical reggae on Firstborn Leaders. The final track is a reference to the generation Anderson himself emerged from, the social justice warriors of 60s and 70s, many of whom still attend his gigs when he plays live. When I was on tour with A Thousand Hands last year, I would do a couple of songs and say, we are the firstborn leaders. Everyone here, you remember the 60s, most of them are from that time. The 60s was this revolutionary time, emotionally, physically, mentally and spiritually. All you need is love was Krishna, but the Beatles sang it and the Beatles were touching the whole world. Amid the coronavirus pandemic, Anderson has turned to meditation for solace. However, the music of the past has also been an aid. Music has always helped, he explains. In the 60s, the music was the lead energy. It was the Beach Boys, it was the Beatles, it was the Stones, it was Zappa. And even in the 70s, yes, get in there as well. We all kept going and we're still happy. A Thousand Hands by John Anderson is out now. By Gary Scott. Recorded from the Herald, 25th of August, 2020. Kieran Tierney to return to Scotland fold for first time under Clark as McCrory poised for call-up. Mark Hendry. Kieran Tierney is expected to return to the international fold for upcoming Nations League matches next month. Head coach Steve Clark has been unable to pick the Arsenal defender since taking the job after a series of injuries ruled the ex-Celtic defender out. The left-back suffered thigh and hip issues and was asked by his club to refrain from volunteering for Scotland. Now though, after an impressive debut season at the Emirates, KT is ready to finally play for Clark and is a likely addition to the boss's squad when it is announced later today. Meanwhile, Robbie McCrory is also poised to earn his first call-up. The Rangers goalkeeper impressed on loan at Livingston last season and could be in line for recognition by Steve Clark when he announces his squad this afternoon. Scotland's upcoming clashes with Israel and Czech Republic next month could be the ideal time for McCrory to debut, with Scott Bain currently not playing for Celtic and Craig Gordon dropping into the Championship with Hearts. Alan McGregor has meanwhile been nursing a knock in recent weeks and David Marshall is still in pre-season with new club Derby County. Jarrett's teammate John McLaughlin is expected to be called up alongside McCrory. Elsewhere in the squad and we may well discover whether Lydon Dykes has opted to play for Scots after his switch from Livy to QPR in England's Championship. The Herald, Tuesday the 25th of August 2020. News. Scottish GP remanded in Belfast over new IRA terror charges. This article is unattributed. A Scottish GP is among the latest people to be remanded in custody in Northern Ireland as part of a major police investigation into the new IRA. Issam 
Basilat, 62, of Telford Road in Edinburgh is alleged to have attended a meeting of the new IRA at an address at Bunninbur Road in Omagh, County Tyrone, on July the 19th. He is accused of preparation of terrorist acts in relation to his attendance at an alleged meeting of the new IRA at an address at Bunninbur Road in Omagh, County Tyrone, on July the 19th. Basilat's defence lawyer set out that his client is a GP based in Scotland who previously chaired the Palestine Society in Scotland and has addressed the Scottish Parliament. He has addressed a number of political groups on a number of political issues in an entirely peaceful and democratic way, nor has he come to the attention of the police for any of those activities, he told the court. He said his client had been pestered to attend and address a public meeting that he believed had an exclusively political purpose while he was in Northern Ireland to obtain a passport for his daughter in Belfast and went on to claim that his client has been entrapped by an MI5 agent. David Jordan, 49, of Coppa Road in Dungannon, County Tyrone, also appeared at Belfast Magistrates Court on Tuesday. Jordan is accused of belonging to a prescribed organisation between February the 8th and July the 20th, directing a terrorist organisation and preparation of terrorist acts through attending the same meeting at Bunninvire Road in Omagh, as well as attending a meeting in Six Mile Cross on February the 9th. Both men appeared in court remotely by video link from Musgrave Police Station. A PSNI detective chief inspector told the court he believed he could connect the two accused to the charges they face and agreed he was aware of audio and video evidence in the case. There was no application for bail. A defence lawyer for Jordan said issues have been raised around the transcript of some of the evidence. The PSNI detective chief inspector said police have extensively looked at all the processes around the acquisition and indeed the timings in relation to the recordings. We are more than content that the rules of evidence have been complied with and there are no inaccuracies in relation to the material obtained and indeed that put during the interview. Jordan's defence lawyer also contended that his client had been lured to attend the meetings and brought under false pretences. District Judge Fiona Bagnall said on the basis of what she had heard, she was satisfied that the bar had been crossed in order to connect these defendants to the charges which are before the court. A bail healing by Basilat is to be heard on September the 9th. On Monday, Sharon Jordan, 45, of Kappa Road in Dungannon, County Tyrone, Kevin Barry Murphy, 49, of Altawin Park, Coal Island, County Tyrone, Damien McLaughlin, 44, of Kilmascali Road, Dungannon, Amanda McCabe, 49, of Aylesbury Gardens in Lurgan, County Armagh, Gary Hayden, 48, of Tyre, Connell Street in Londonderry, and Joseph Barr, 32, of Cecilia's Walk in Londonderry, were all remanded in custody on terrorism charges linked to the same police investigation. And on Saturday, Shea Reynolds, 26, of Belvedere Manor in Lurgan, County Armagh, and Patrick McDade, 50, of McGowan Park in Londonderry, were remanded in custody. The 10 accused will appear before Belfast Magistrates Court on September the 18th. They were arrested as part of Operation Arbasia, a major PSNI investigation into the dissident Republic group, which was blamed for the murder of journalist Lyra McKee as she observed a riot in Londonderry last year. PSNI Assistant Chief Constable Barbara Gray described the operation earlier this week as a longer-term probe into every aspect of the activities of the new IRA in its entirety. This article is unattributed. Thank you.
You are listening to the Herald Scotland, recorded on Tuesday the 25th of August 2020. Letters. It's easy to take the moral high ground on immigration if you don't have to make the hard decisions. Jim Robertson of East Kilbride writes, Rebecca McQuillan in UK Could Prevent Channel Tragedies If It Cared Enough in the Herald August 21st, highlights the tragic death of the 16-year-old boy attempting to cross the channel, then uses it as a stepping stone to push for more immigration into the UK and condemning the UK government for trying to curb it. Where she possibly has a point is in the matter of keeping families apart where, although children can join parents granted asylum in the UK, it does not work in reverse. But you have to wonder... What are children doing making the perilous journey across half a continent, followed by a treacherous sea crossing? Why were they allowed by caring parents to take it on in the first place? She goes on to say that the UK government should make it easier and safer for migrants to make the journey, and not just asylum seekers who need to flee real personal threat. She says that everyone knows that Britain needs migrants, Where does that come from? How many of the migrants trying to reach our shores are doctors and nurses? The category is always cited as justification for open immigration. Most immigrants work in service industries and pay their taxes, but are consumers of food and other goods that are mainly imported. And they, like everyone else, need access to a health service nearing meltdown. There may be some justification for her case on humanitarian grounds, but none on the basis of our need at a time when redundancy is running riot. How many does Miss McQuillan think we should take in? 5,000? A million? 5 million? All of them? If not, is she prepared to go on the front line and select those to be welcomed and tell the rest they're out? Some years ago... Angela Merkel opened her arms and Germany's doors to migrants and received more than a million before she could blink. It almost cost her and her previously unassailable government power. Two categories of immigrants are generally identified. Asylum seekers at real personal risk and economic migrants who want better opportunities than they have at home. There is a much, much larger third group People living in abject poverty all over the world, who are certainly more deserving than the second category, but don't even begin to have the resources to try to move on. Anyone campaigning for the West to seriously pressure the home governments of all three to clean up their act would get my vote. There doesn't seem to be much will for that. What I find objectionable about Miss Quillen's article is her claiming there to be Millions who view this anti-immigration rhetoric with disgust. What millions? Disgust is a strong word. If anything disgusts me, and not for the first time, it is someone who self-righteously claims the moral high ground while leaving it to others, carrying the unwelcome responsibility to take the hard decisions. You're listening to The Herald Scotland, recorded on Wednesday the 26th of August 2020. Opinion 
by Brian Beacom, Senior Features Writer. Somebody tell me why Nicola Sturgeon is so far ahead in the polls. Face masks? Is this the latest example of why First Minister Nicola Sturgeon's approval ratings have soared to plus 50 as opposed to Boris Johnson's minus 50, according to YouGov results? Yesterday, Ms Sturgeon reconfigured the corridor face of the Scottish school pupil and in doing so scored even more points against the UK leader Boris Johnson, who will now play catch-up yet again. The Scottish public is ever-growing in its adulation of the First Minister, baby boomers slightly less so. Wallowing in her determinism and delivery, Ms Jean Brodie commanding and purposeful, but without the Mussolini longing. All delightfully revoiced by Janie Godley into the Parliamo reversed You've Been Tell podcast series. Nicola Sturgeon is a star politician. She is also the antithesis of Boris Johnson. She's a leader who works harder than Sisyphus, her shoulder determined to push that big tartan boulder up every mountain in the land. But it seems the public has never read Machiavelli's maxim regarding appearances. Quote, Everyone sees what you appear to be. Few experience what you really are. Unquote. Haven't they seen the fault lines and failures? Did John Swinney's blended confusion, the school exams fiasco, not matter? Couldn't you just imagine the First Minister and her Education Secretary high-fiving each other till their hands stung at the realisation Gavin Williamson was equally incompetent? Where was the analysis of the decision to demonise football clubs because of the behaviour of their imbecilic players? Had a work party of chartered accountants grouped at an Aberdeen bar, would she have threatened to close down every accountancy office in Scotland? Had a leading lawyer taken off to Spain for a night of heavy trysting with his Belgian model girlfriend, allegedly, would Humza Youssef have threatened to close down our law offices? And what of the early COVID disasters? The care home strategy? The lack of detail in testing and tracing? The early lockdown attempts to delay freedom of information requests by journalists. Janie Godley never pointed out what you weren't being telt, or what was being telt and then altered, such as the claims that the coronavirus rate in England is, quote, five times higher, unquote, than Scotland, later challenged by the UK statistics watchdog. Or that the directive to move the elderly from hospital beds to care homes was a straight copy of UK policy. And right now, why are SNP supporters choosing to ignore that our Education Secretary should have anticipated the usual back-to-school sniffles and coughs, realised that these would translate immediately into COVID fear, creating a swelling demand more overwhelming than a classroom exit at home time on a sunny Friday? But will it matter the government COVID testing website was directing anxious parents to Belfast? No. It could have been directing them to a rundown caravan park in Mabel, and it would make no difference to the plan to vote for the SNP, and most likely independence. Why is this the case? Rebecca Solnit wrote in her treatise, Hope in the Dark, Hope is an embrace of the unknown and the unknowable, an alternative to the certainty of both optimists and pessimists. We write history with our feet and with our presence, and our collective voice and vision. The embrace of hope, 
The dropping of the idea of egalitarianism has been aided immensely by the perceived hopelessness of a UK government, and just as importantly the lack of political option in Scotland. Scottish Labour is almost mythical. The Tories tied to Westminster. What the SNP has done cleverly is to avoid the future reality. Our inflated public sector, or the warnings from Andrew Wilson, one of the SNP's most senior economic advisers, that Scotland's recovery from the current recession will be the worst in the developed world. We don't know, or care, how we will deal with multinational behemoths. We don't need to know how a future Scotland will be funded without the Bank of England to underpin our debt. Scots aren't asking these questions. They're pulling down the blinds, wrapping themselves up in a cosy tartan blanket and watching reruns of Brigadoon and Whiskey Galore. What does the oil industry collapse matter? We have the commanding powerful Nicola, the BBC Scotland Channel and Val McDermott and Andy Murray back on form. Isn't that enough to build a future on? This article was by Brian Beacom. Herald Scotland recorded on Wednesday 26th of August 2020. Paperbacks, The Song of Simon de Montfort, The World We Knew, Pablo and Me, by Alistair Mabbitt. The Song of Simon de Montfort, Sophie Therese Ambler, Picador, £8.99. Simon de Montfort is one of those historical figures whose name is familiar, even if you haven't a clue why. It's high time this neglected medieval knight got more recognition, and Ambler's biography does an outstanding job. De Montfort was the sixth Earl of Leicester and a crusader. Frustrated with Henry III's cruelty to his subjects and refusal to listen to his nobles, he seized power, bringing about a level of constitutional upheaval that wouldn't be seen again until Oliver Cromwell's time. That he isn't better known maybe because he and his revolutionary council only ran England for 15 months, de Montfort being killed in the battlefield in 1265. Given that more than 750 years have passed, Ambler was able to draw on an impressive range of sources, her scholarship combining with a flair for storytelling to paint a detailed and compelling portrait of a remarkable and significant man. The World We Knew, Alice Hoffman, Scribner, £8.99 Magical realism might seem like an uncomfortable fit for a Holocaust novel, but the prolific Alice Hoffman knows what she's doing. She begins in Berlin in 1941, with Hanny Cohn deciding to get her 12-year-old daughter out of Germany and paying a rabbi's daughter, Etty, to create a golem to protect her. The golem Etty summons from the mud is named Ava, and shepherds Leah through France after they're separated from Etty, who joins the resistance. Over the next three years, as they try to stay one step ahead of the Nazis, Ava becomes increasingly human, which Leah has been warned could be problematic. With Ava representing Hanny's undying love for her daughter and having her own romance with a talking heron, Hoffman seems more committed to the magical aspects of her novel than her depictions of a mundane world. But it's enchanting stuff, finding beauty and hope in unpromising circumstances. Pablo and Me Victoria Eugenia Henau, Ebery, £9.99. As the Netflix show Narcos highlights, Colombian drug lord Pablo Escobar still exerts a ghoulish fascination. 
the wealthiest criminal in history. Escobar owned a private zoo and sat in the Colombian Chamber of Representatives while making his country the murder capital of the world. Now his widow has written her own memoir of their bizarre life together. Hena met Escobar when she was 13, married him at 15 and remained at his side for 16 years until his death in 1993. Held there by a combination of fear and love, at one point hiring a poet to help her write love letters to keep her husband from straying. She details too how after his death she negotiated with Escobar's enemies to save the life of her son and rather than continuing to look the other way, made contact with the families of his victims. It's an incredible first-hand account of a life of surreal extremes. By Alistair Mabbitt. Recorded from the Herald, 26th of August 2020. Scottish transfer news as it happened. Ryan Kent to Leeds. Charlie Nicholas sacked by Sky Sports. West Brom wants Celtics Adger. Mark Hendry. From the 26th of August. 9.42am. Good morning and welcome to today's live transfer blog. Let's not waste any more time. 9.44am. Rangers are waiting on Lily to make another move for Alfredo Morelos. The Ibrox club booted out a £16 million bid for the Colombian recently, but are preparing themselves to be tested again. Reports had claimed Morelos had handed in a transfer request, but Herald and Time Sport can reveal those reports are wide of the mark. 9.46am. Aaron Hickey has reportedly decided on his next move and it looks like it'll be to Serie A with Bologna. The Young Hearts left-back has been to Bayern Munich and Bologna to take in scenery and facilities and the Daily Mail claim he has made his choice. Hearts left-back Aaron Hickey wants to make £1.3 million move to Serie A Bologna despite interest from Bayern Munich and others. Stephen.McGowan at McGowan underscore Stephen August 25th 2020 9.49am. Celtic defender Chris Ager has emerged as a transfer target for Premier League newcomers West Brom. Their Norwegian has been on AC Milan's radar for months, but Slavin Bilic could rival the Italians for Ager's signature. The Baggies hope to strengthen to give themselves the best chance in the top flight, and according to Athletic, they feel Ager would be a good fit. 9.52am. Sticking with Celtic and Neil Lennon has rubbish reports linking the club with Trabzonspor striker Caleb Ukebin. Asked what he knew about it, he replied, Nothing, absolutely nothing. I'm getting all this speculation and chat and rumours, and this is the age we live in. But I can tell you hand on heart that this is the first time I've heard of this player. I'm not aware of any bids or contact with the player or the club or representatives. 9.56am Former Hoops defender Mikael Lustig has left Gent to join AIK. The Swede was dropped to train with the kids in Belgium and opted to leave to return back to his home country. 9.58am Everton, Leicester City, Southampton and Leeds United are all interested in promising Dundee United starlet Lewis Nielsen. The Courier report that the English big guns all watched the 17-year-old against Celtic last weekend. 10.07am Fraser Forster has been spotted back in training with the Southampton. The ex-Celtic loanee was wanted back in Glasgow this season for another loan spell, but opted to remain down south. He'll look to fight it out for Saints' number one spot this term. 10.35am Former Rangers midfielder Andy Halliday admits he finds it hard to understand supporters' criticism of James Tavernier, 
insisting the captain has been their best player for years. Tavernia has been subject to abuse over recent campaigns for his defence frailties, but Halliday pointed to his ex-teammates' attacking statistics and goals-to-games ratio for a defender, and he bemoaned fans' complaints, backing the Englishman, admitting he can't believe the stick Tavernia gets regularly. Read the full story here. 10.38am. Another twist in the saga between Celtic and Caleb Yukovin now. Amazingly, despite Neil Lennon claiming hand on heart that he'd not heard of any interest in the Trabzonspor player whatsoever, Turkish media outlet Azkam are still claiming the striker will be announced this week. Lennon and Fanatic of Turkey both shot down rumours this week. 10.40am. We'd be remiss if we didn't mention the biggest transfer news worldwide this morning. Lionel Messi has told Barcelona he wants to leave, and Scott's tennis superstar Andy Murray hopes he is headed to Hibs. 10.57am. Ryan Kent's possible switch to Leeds United could all hinge on Marcelo Bielsa's interest in Valencia attacker Rodrigo. The natural striker can also play on both flanks and the Whites are hopeful of tying him up on a deal. This could completely change any potential offer for Rangers Kent after they had bid around £10 million rejected by the Blight Blues. 11.23am. Neil Lennon expects Boley Bolingoli's independent investigation to be concluded in a day or two, as he confirmed the player is not yet back in training despite being out of quarantine. Real full story here. 2.25pm. David Turnbull did not train with his Motherwell teammates today as he closes in on a move to Celtic. The Hoops are desperately close to finally landing their man in a deal worth to be believed in the region of around £3 million. It comes as, we'll have a Europa League qualifier with Glen Torren to prepare for, which suggests the discussions are at an advanced stage. 3.07pm. Ryan Kent will have a massive decision to make should Rangers accept a bid from Leeds United this window. That's the view of ex-Jers defender Alan Hutton. Read why in full here. 3.34pm. Celtic hero Chris Sutton was among football fans in Scotland to blast the Scots government after their decision to allow rugby fans a trial return, but not Hoops fans. Read full story here. Other supporters were also furious with the decision, and you can read the full story here. 3.36pm. Back to transfer business then. And Kevin Kyle has been tipped Rangers to move from Martin Boyle should they sell Ryan Kent. While accepting the two wingers are somewhat incomparable in terms of ability, the former Rangers striker reckons Boyle could do a job for the Light Blues. Read the full story here. 4.17pm Celtic hero Charlie Nicholas has been sensationally sacked by Sky Sports Soccer Saturday. Read the full story here. 4.28pm Martin Boyle may yet be in line for a new deal at Hibs. The wingers expected to pen a new contract under Jack Ross to scare off any potential suitors. Jack Ross has been keen to tie up the deal and has now moved to do so as a matter of priority, with clubs circling the player, according to the Daily Record. Rangers were urged by Kevin Kyle to move for the Australian should they sell Ryan Kent. 4.39pm Shane Duffy would go straight into the Celtic starting eleven ahead of Christopher Julian and Chris Adger. That's according to Frank McAvinney. Read the full story here. 5.25pm. Ex-Morton midfielder Freddie Bashkaro has joined Nottingham Forest. The 30-year-old Comoros international started his career at Paris Saint-Germain before it took him to Malmo and Ostersunds. 
5.37pm. Here's one we weren't expecting today. Leo Messi's next club will be Celtic or Rangers. Well, no, not really, no chance. But that hasn't stopped the bookies from adding both Glasgow clubs to their odds lists. Read the full story here. 5.41pm. Anyway, back to the land of the living. Good bit of business for Hibs this. At Martin Boyle 9 has agreed a new contract until the summer of 2023. I'm really pleased to have signed my new contract and it's no secret what the club means to me and my family. Enjoy your Wednesday night, Hibbies. At Hibernian FC, at Hibernian FC, August 26th, 2020. 5.48pm. Dundee have appointed Dave Mackay as James McPake's new assistant. The ex-Dens defender has been part of the coaching staff since last summer and will now step up to replace the axe Jimmy Nicholl. 5.55pm. That's about all from us today. Thanks a lot for joining us, as always. Until next time. The Herald, Wednesday the 26th of August 2020. News. Hoyt cluster, seven tests positive for COVID-19 in outbreak. This article is by L. Duffy. A new cluster outbreak of coronavirus has been identified in a Scottish town. Seven people have tested positive for COVID-19 in the Scottish borders, with NHS Border Health Protection Team confirming they are currently dealing with an outbreak in Hoyk. The positive cases are linked to three businesses in the town, Morrison's, the Trinity Bar and Baguette and Co. In a statement, NHS Borders said all close contacts with the positive case associated with Morrison's have been contacted and provided with advice. NHS Borders Test and Protect team are contacting any customers of the Trinity Bar who may be affected and close contacts are being advised to self-isolate and are being given appropriate advice. Although the risk of catching the virus at Baguette and Go was low, if you visited the outlet on Thursday the 20th and Friday the 21st, you need to be extra vigilant. Health bosses say there are plans for a mobile testing unit to be set up later this week, but say that people looking to book a COVID-19 test in the meantime may have to travel to Gala Shields. It comes after the NHS experienced a major spike in demand for coronavirus testing over the weekend. Nicola Sturgeon announced that 11 walk-in testing centres will be set up, the first of which will be in the Victory Memorial Hall in St Andrews, Fife. The centres will boost capacity by more than 3,000 tests daily. This article is by L. Duffy. You're listening to the Herald Scotland recorded on Wednesday the 26th of August 2020. Why we are all going mad for the joys of gardening. An opinion article by Rosemary Goring, literary editor and columnist. Round where I live, the darkest days of lockdown were lightened a little by the regular arrival of vans bringing garden essentials. Up and down the street, bags of compost, mulch and topsoil were left on doorsteps, like sacks of coal in bygone days. Demand for these springtime basics, not to mention bedding plants, seeds, shrubs and flowers, was intense. One garden centre owner told me that at the start of the pandemic she was able to carry a single 60 litre compost bag but by the end, after a frenzy of home deliveries, could lift two at a time. A glance at her biceps suggested she could probably also shift a garden shed. 
In recent months, it seems our village has been bang on trend as ever. Across the UK, as headlines foretold the devastation lockdown would wreak on this seasonal trade, footage of acres of wilting plants was grim. Cania businesses immediately shifted to online and telephone orders. And as recent figures show, people responded enthusiastically. During that period, Britain spent around £3.7 billion on garden plants, materials and tools. Contrary to the stereotypical picture of a Mr McGregor retiree footering around in his potting shed, it was millennials who spent most. Their investment was double that of the rest of us, with the 25 to 39 age group spending an average £213 per person compared with £105 among others. Some of that might be explained by the urgent need for equipment to turn a rectangle of grass into a more imaginative space for all the family to enjoy. I'm long past their age, but still so new to gardening that I recall those early months as a ceaseless outlay on shears, secateurs, spades, forks, trowels, rakes, sieves. I could go on. Hence the need for a shed, which was soon festooned with tools dangling from hooks, propped against walls and stacked on shelves. Think of an Italian deli with hams and salamis overhead and floor-to-ceiling storage. Replace the delicious aroma of cheeses, coffee beans and truffles with potting compost, muddied buckets and oil to keep blades moving and you get the picture. There are professional horticulturists where I live who are well under 40. But that's probably not surprising. Those who choose to live in the country are already keen on the outdoors, whatever their vintage. Yet there is something of a renaissance occurring in this generation, as interest in their own plot is sparked into life, whether it's an allotment, balcony or backyard. In response to what you might call a growing trend, Alan Titchmarsh has said that he hopes more young folk will be encouraged to pick up their trails and dig up drives to help protect the planet. It's not just about going on marches, he says. Being practical is a hugely underrated resource and skill. Those who have unexpectedly found themselves with time to devote to their patch have probably realised how enjoyable it is too. Being in the fresh air surrounded by birds and perhaps with children larking around has shown how much pleasure can be had in maintaining your part of the world. At this stage of life, competition for people's spare time is usually ferocious, with the demands of socialising, keeping fit and raising a family. In the past, unless you were actively emulating the good life, choosing to spend the weekend planting drills of potatoes or deadheading roses was borderline eccentric. Being forced to spend so much time at home has clearly made people reassess their outdoor space and consider its potential. Making their plot child-friendly has been a priority for some, but for those who dread the thought of a football landing on tender seedlings and new blooms, there should be no conflict between serious cultivation and youngsters. Quite the opposite. The earlier children encounter flowers and trees and the wildlife they attract, the better for all our futures. And the sooner they recognise the need to treat living things with respect, although some trampling and breakage is almost inevitable, the more they will understand not just how nature works, but the ways in which we can support it. I've lost count of the number of people who have said how much they have relished this aspect of lockdown. 
having nowhere else to go has allowed them to concentrate on matters horticultural and take time to make decisions or try experiments they otherwise could not have attempted. Having many more unfulfilled free hours has its upsides, as one neighbour has discovered. When the pandemic took hold, she turned her greenhouse into a hotbed of tomatoes and her flower beds into a lettuce patchwork and has been feasting on salads all summer, as have her friends. Inevitably, once the world opens up again, some recent converts will lose interest and the weeds will take revenge. Yet I have no doubt that many will already be hooked. The secret that no gardener ever mentions is that it's addictive. Each tiny success gives confidence to try something more adventurous. Mistakes are inevitable, but so are accidental triumphs. The thrill of discovering strawberries or nasturtiums thriving where before there was a bed of nettles is inspiring. The sight of bees and birds hovering for nectar, seeds and grubs is like preparing a banquet and watching as guests pile their plates high. To be honest, environmental reasons for sustainable, eco-friendly gardening are all but forgotten in the joy it brings. The reason why benches in most well-tended grounds go largely unused is because there's always something clamouring for attention. To sit, sit in a G&T, while an unpruned shrub stares at you reproachfully, or a juicy stick of rhubarb cries to be picked, is almost impossible. In my own limited experience, trying to keep on top of it all, and never coming remotely close, is part of what it's all about. An expert recently told me that a garden will take all the time you give it, and then some. Yet the depths of winter is a time to put your feet up and make wish lists of plants. The rest of the year is for helping the green things around you put down sturdy roots. As millennials can confirm, it has a very stabilising, calming effect on us too. You're listening to The Herald Scotland, recorded on Thursday the 27th of August 2020. Opinion by Alison Rowett, Senior Politics and Features Writer. In the court of King Donald, one woman reigns supreme. Her face is world famous, and she is the other half of the planet's most powerful political leader. A Slovenian-American Jackie Kennedy for the age. A Diana without the tragedy. Yet, after four years in the job of America's First Lady, who outside the DC Beltway can say they know Melania Trump? Her speech at this week's Republican National Convention will have been the first time some have even heard her voice. True to the Trump brand, her White House Rose Garden address was controversial, with the administration accused of breaking with tradition and using the office and trappings of the presidency for political gain. While every president arguably does this out with election periods, Donald Trump has become the most blatant offender. He will close the convention tonight with fireworks over the White House lawn. Rumours that he will project his image onto the building are wide of the mark, probably. Mrs Trump has never been the most comfortable public speaker. Her convention debut in 2016 became a disaster when it was spotted that a paragraph from her speech was remarkably similar 
to one in a Michelle Obama address eight years earlier. A speechwriter took the blame. This time, she was more relaxed, though still relying heavily on the teleprompter. What she said was highly revealing of both herself and the way the Trump campaign intends to fight this presidential election. It is the have-cake-and-eat-it strategy, familiar to many a Brexiter. Here was a new US citizen standing up for the most nakedly anti-immigrant president in living memory. A foreigner, only the second first lady to be born outside of the US, appealing for racial harmony after her husband has done so much to stoke tension between communities. Here too was a wife and mother, talking about the terrible impact of COVID-19, while her husband has so often appeared in denial about the virus that has claimed 178,000 lives, almost 1,000 people a day. Read that again and it still won't sink in. This was Melania as the good political cop to her husband's bad, the softer side of his presidency, there to appeal to the sizeable band of Republican voters, many women, who held their nose in 2016, only to regret it later. It is a curious thing about Mr Trump that this most misogynist of men, someone caught on tape talking about women in shockingly coarse terms, should owe much of his success to women. On one level, we should hardly be surprised. The old saying about behind every powerful man, etc., is a cliché, but that does not stop it being true. Personally, I prefer the version attributed to Jim Carrey. Behind every great man is a woman rolling her eyes. Women who have found it impossible to gain power in their own right, for whatever reason, will hitch their wagon to someone else's. Men do it too. Every king has his court. What makes Mr Trump remarkable is the number of women he has around him and the extent to which he relies upon them. There are the blood ties to daughters Ivanka from his first wife Ivana and Tiffany from second wife Marla. Ivanka and her husband are indulged to the point of having their own court. There are few who do not see her running for president one day. The betting side odds checker puts her chances of winning in 2024, yes, the caravan has moved on already, at 33 to 1. Before the wives and daughters, there was the Scottish mother, Mary Ann MacLeod Trump. In his victory speech of 2016, he first thanked his parents, quote, who I know are looking down on me right now, for being great people, from whom he learned so much. Every book in Trump so far has been lighter on details about Mary Ann than on his father Fred. Michael Cranish in Mark Fisher's book, Trump Revealed, describes his visit to his mother's old home in the Outer Hebrides. He was inside for just over a minute and a half. He told reporters, quote, I do feel Scottish, but don't ask me to define that. There was something very strong from my mother, unquote. Mary Ann would have, would have had to be tough to stay married to her overbearing and ferociously ambitious husband. Another woman who can lay claim to knowing Mr Trump more than most is Kellyanne Conway, senior advisor to the President for the last two years. Ms Conway, coiner of the phrase alternative facts, 
has defended her boss to the utmost, even at the cost, it seems, to her family life. She resigned this week, shortly after being mom-shamed by one of her daughters, Claudia Conway. Claudia Conway, like her father, has been an ardent critic of Mr Trump. This time, it was her mother who bore the brunt of her anger. The teenager tweeted that her mother's job and desire for money and fame had ruined her daughter's life. Miss Conway has now promised her four children less drama, more mama. The final woman of note in the court of King Donald is someone estranged from him. Mary L. Trump, his niece, landed several blows in her book, Too Much and Never Enough, How My Family Created the World's Most Dangerous Man. Ms. Trump, a psychologist, did so not by labelling him a textbook narcissist, he has been called worse, but by revealing more about his early years and family infighting. That must have hurt. Of all these women, the most fascinating remains Melania Trump, although I would still love to know more about Marianne McLeod. The only writer to have come anywhere near Melania Trump is Washington Post reporter Mary Jordan whose biography, The Art of Her Deal, is an enthralling, highly entertaining read. From parts of the jigsaw, she assembles a picture of a woman who is hard-working, tough, sticks close to her family and keeps her own counsel. The takeaway, particularly for all those who persist in seeing the First Lady as an unhappy prisoner in a fake gold cage, is that no one need worry about Melania. She's got it. It is Melania, not her husband, who is the true face of the modern United States. In that, she shares a spot with another First Lady, Michelle Obama. America has not heard the last from either woman. This article was by Alison Rowett. Herald Scotland, recorded on Thursday 27th of August 2020. Five new books to read this week by Gary Scott. Fiction. 1. Final Cut. S.J. Watson. Double Day. £12.99. Brackets. Ebook. £7.99. Close brackets. Best-selling author S.J. Watson. Brackets. Before I Go to Sleep. Close brackets. Is back with another disturbing psychological thriller. Like The Quiet Village, where documentary filmmaker Alex's new project is set, the pace is slow for much of the novel. Watson is a master manipulator of suspense. Every time you think you're close to revealing a chink of truth, it suddenly becomes a dead end. Everyone in town is a suspect, and Alex's own secrets are tied up in it all too. A complex plot centred on psychological dissociation and amnesia shatters the novel's timeline, with chapters flitting between then and now. As unpredictable as the turbulent tide, you'll be caught up in the relentless winding tension until the truth eventually breaks and you're able to breathe freely again. Rebecca Wilcock Homecoming Lewin Goldie, Harper Collins, £12.99, brackets, ebook, £5.99, close brackets. Lewin Goldie's new book has a title that suggests identity will be at its core. Instead, Homecoming sees identity pushed to the background in favour of interpersonal relationships and drama. The action flashes from past to present and focuses on four characters Avon and Emma, two best friends from university who drift apart. 
Lewis, the father of Emma's baby, who has an on-again, off-again relationship with Yvonne, and Kiama, the child. In the present day, 18-year-old Kiama visits his mother's home country of Kenya to come to terms with her death. Goldie is skilled at drip-feeding information to keep the reader in the dark and desperate to know what actually happened. However, with Emma being white and from Kenya, Lewis black and from London, and Kiama mixed race, it feels like there's a wealth of issues around identity that are just not touched upon. It's a gripping read, but you're left wanting more. Prudence Wade The Majesties Tiffany Sow Pushkin Press Priced £8.99 Brackets Ebook £6.99 Close brackets Gwendolyn wakes up in a hospital bed, the sole survivor of a poisoning which killed her entire family. Her sister Estella is seemingly responsible for murdering 300 people and as she lays there dying, Gwendolyn tries to make sense of what happened. Majesties explores the lavish wealth of one of Asia's richest families and the drama that goes with it. Ideal for fans of My Sister the Serial Killer by O'Yink and Braithwaite. It's full of suspense and steeped in opulence, well paced and beautifully written. Ignore any comparisons made to the Crazy Rich Asians trilogy, this book is in a world of its own. Megan Baines Non-fiction 4. Intimations 6 Essays Zadie Smith Penguin £5.99 Brackets Ebook £4.49 Close brackets In this slim collection of new pieces Proceeds from which are going to charity The author of White Teeth and the Autograph Man Explores thoughts, feelings and issues Raised by the experience of lockdown Writing from New York on the verge of leaving for London, Zadie Smith confesses to her new self-consciousness about how she fills her time. Smith says she writes for something to do, and she isn't the only person who has been searching for ways to fill their time. She reflects on suffering and the limits of compassion, and sketches the centuries-old history of the virus of, brackets, racist, close brackets, contempt. Her explorations are always thoughtful and quietly provocative. The collection is strongly personal too, as Smith recounts vignettes from her own everyday existence and reflects on some of the key figures, famous and family alike, who have helped form her. It is a slight book, but its reflections will continue to reverberate. Dan Brotzel Children's Book of the Week Death Sets Sail, Robin Stevens, Puffin, £6.99 Brackets, ebook £3.99. Close brackets. This is a thrilling end to the Murdermost Unladylike series, joining Daisy Wells and Hazel Wong on their holiday cruise along the Nile. A grisly murder is never far from this pair, and within days of boarding, they're unpacking the twists and turns of a cult leader's untimely demise before their boat docks in Aswan. Fortunately, the junior Pinkertons happen to be on board too. So there are four detective minds working the case, and a few extra characters who help this instalment feel fresh and well-rounded. Emotional challenges are also explored as the girls leave their childhoods behind. Ending an award-winning series can be a challenge, but Robin Stevens delivers a clever murder mystery that sucks the reader in and pays homage to Queen of Crime, Agatha Christie. This is a fantastic read that should please fans, and anyone new to the series will still find it thoroughly readable. Nicole Witten by Gary Scott. Recorded from the Herald, 27th of August 2020. Celtic complete signing of Motherwell player David Turnbull on four-year deal, Mark Hendry. 
Celtic have completed the signing of Motherwell's David Turnbull. The midfielder was confirmed by the Hoops' social media account this afternoon. It is believed to be worth around £3 million to the Steelmen. He has signed a four-year contract with Glasgow's champions. Turnbull, of course, was set to sign for Celts last year before a failed medical scuppered the move. It also forced the 21-year-old out of action for a number of months after requiring surgery. The saga disappointed the player, however, he told his new club's official website that he is delighted to finally get the deal over the line on a dream. He beamed, I'm absolutely delighted to be here, especially after what happened last year, and I'm ready to hit the ground running. I feel I've started well this season and I want to carry that on with Celtic. It's great to join the biggest club in Scotland and I want to help us win more silverware in what I know is an important season for Celtic. Turnbull was recently hailed as one of the best youngsters Scottish football has ever produced by well-boss Stephen Robinson. New teammate Callum McGregor also admitted he'd love the midfielder to join up at Parkhead. More follows. The Herald, Thursday the 27th of August 2020. News. Highest ever number of children in temporary accommodation as homelessness on the rise. This article is by David Ball. More than 7,000 Scotch children were living in temporary accommodation as the COVID-19 pandemic began, the highest number since records began 18 years ago. Statistics released by the Scottish Government reveal that 31,333 households were assessed as homeless in 2019-2020, a 4% increase on the previous year, while 7,280 children were being sheltered in temporary accommodation as of March 31st, a 7% rise on the same time the previous year. Campaigners have called for the Scottish Government to uphold their promises to homeless people amid fears of a long-term crisis. A total of 51,365 people were homeless in Scotland in 2019-20, 35,654 adults and 15,711 children. As of March 31st, there were a total of 11,665 households in temporary accommodation, 3,570 of which contained a pregnant woman or children, a 5% rise. Glasgow had the highest number of homeless households in 2019-2020, with 5,262 and 17% of Scotland's total, and a 12% rise from the previous year. In Edinburgh, 3,355 households were homeless, a 5% rise in the space of a year. Local authorities are required by law to offer temporary accommodation to homeless households, but during 2019-20, Glasgow City Council did not offer the shelter on 3,835 occasions, whereas across Scotland the number was 4,595. Edinburgh City Council breached unsuitable accommodation laws where a pregnant woman or a child is in unsuitable accommodation for more than seven days, 375 times out of 500 breaches across Scotland. Shelter Scotland's Assistant Director for Communications and Advocacy, Gordon McRae, said these figures show that Scotland's homelessness system was failing people even before the pandemic hit. We had rising homelessness and record numbers of people in temporary accommodation before the lockdown. Local authorities were already struggling to cope with the level of housing need and since then the situation has gotten a lot worse.
The Scottish Government took swift action in the early days of the pandemic to get rough sleepers off the streets, protect people from eviction and limit the amount of time anyone could spend in unsuitable temporary accommodation. They pledged not to go backwards on homelessness as we emerged from the crisis. He added, now is the time for ministers to uphold their promise to homeless people. Government and local authorities must urgently step up and significantly increase the supply of suitable accommodation. Otherwise, a short-term success could become a long-term crisis, with more and more people trapped in unsuitable temporary accommodation or forced back onto the streets. Officials who drew up the statistics have stressed that the data only crosses over with around a week of coronavirus restrictions, concluding that the impact of the COVID-19 pandemic on the statistics will be minimal, but snapshot data on temporary accommodation on March the 31st may be impacted by the beginning of the lockdown. Housing Minister Kevin Stewart said, Today's figures are a reminder about why we are committed to ending homelessness and rough sleeping. They do not reflect the progress made to dramatically reduce the numbers of people sleeping rough during the COVID-19 pandemic. Since the start of the crisis, we have provided more than £1.5 million to third sector partners to accommodate those experiencing homelessness in hotels. This builds on our £32.5 million investment to support local authorities to prioritise settled accommodation for all. He added, our priority is now to prevent anyone from ending up back in the streets or in unsuitable temporary accommodation. To help us achieve this, the Homelessness and Rough Sleeping Action Group recently made a series of recommendations, which we will respond to fully next month. In the interim, our partners have closed night shelters to explore alternative self-contained options for the coming winter, with a view to phasing out such shelters completely in the long term. Additionally, as previously announced, we also intend to extend emergency legislation designed to protect renters from eviction. This article is by David Ball. You are listening to the Herald Scotland recorded on Thursday the 27th of August 2020. Rural Britannia is racist rubbish, but so is Flower of Scotland. An opinion article by Mark Smith, future writer. Ugh. In the interest of research, I have just watched Nigel Farage singing Royal Britannia. Look at him. Eyes flaring, spittle glistening, mouth gaping, blasting his Brexity breath over everyone. Britons never, never, never shall be slaves. He loves it. And so does Lawrence Fox and Piers Morgan and Boris Johnson. All of them have complained about the BBC's announcement that this year's last night of the proms will not include the singing of Royal Britannia. The BBC said there would be an orchestral version of the song instead as part of what they called an inclusive event. Mr Farage and the rest of them were not pleased. Mr Fox said the Britain-hating BBC should have its funding removed. Mr Morgan said the BBC needed to stop grovelling to woke nonsense. And Mr Johnson said it was time we stopped our cringing embarrassment about our history and culture. But who's cringing? The problem many people have with Royal Britannia is its jingoism. Ahead of the prom's decision, BBC Music magazine's Richard Morrison said anachronistic songs such as Royal Britannia should be dropped. There can't be many people in 2020 who think Britain really does rule the waves, he wrote. How else could you sing those words except as history reenacted as farce? 
But I think, actually, if you look at recent proms, the answer to Mr Morrison's question has become pretty clear. The mezzo-soprano, Sarah Connolly, sang Rule Britannia in drag as a male naval officer. And last year, Jamie Barton waved not the Union flag, but the LGBT rainbow flag. That's the way to do it. Redesign it. Reinvent it. Don't take it too seriously. However, I appreciate not everyone sees it that way. Gareth Malone, who presents TV programmes about choirs, said, If people want to sing about the subjugation and enslavement of other nations... I don't think that should be given a platform in 2020. And Chichi Nwanoku, who founded an organisation called the Chiniki Foundation for the support of ethnic minority musicians, was even more direct. The lyrics of Rule Britannia are offensive, she said. Fair enough. Rule Britannia is old-fashioned and jingoistic and full of violent imagery about nationhood. And apart from that, it's all a bit silly, isn't it? But I'm afraid it's not alone, because Flower of Scotland is just as bad. It is also old-fashioned and jingoistic, and full of violent imagery about nationhood, and a bit silly. If we need to stop singing Royal Britannia, we need to stop singing Flower of Scotland as well. I say that because the problems with the songs are similar. Royal Britannia bangs on about the ancient past, Britain's navy, and so does Flower of Scotland. Scotland's war with an English king of the 13th century. Get over it. Rule Britannia says Britain's never, never, never shall be slaves and Flower of Scotland says Scots never, never, never shall be slaves of the English. Same song, same problem. Ah, but, apologies for Flower of Scotland will say, our song is about resisting enslavement by the English whereas Royal Britannia is all about imposing the enslavement of empire. But that would be to misunderstand what the lyrics say. Both songs are about a nation's freedom and resisting the tyranny of domination by another nation. Tyrants never shall tame, says Royal Britannia. Send him homeward to think again, says Flower of Scotland. Same song, same problem. What those kind of lyrics leave us with, I'm afraid, is two rather embarrassing songs that bang on about the past. I remember once being at the wedding of a friend of mine who asked his guests to sing Flower of Scotland. I couldn't say no without causing a scene, so I just moved my lips silently, like a bad singer miming on top of the pops, so as not to be part of the jingoistic nonsense. I'd rather not sing Royal Britannia, but I'd rather not sing Flower of Scotland either. The bigger problem, of course, is the kind of sentiment that leads people to write songs like this in the first place and sing them. It's hard to see how Royal Britannia is racist, as some people claim. And if it is, then so is Flower of Scotland. But the people who love these songs should remember what they are actually about. They celebrate violence. Violently establishing your nation or violently resisting another one. They promote images that have little relevance anymore. Seafaring Britons ruling the waves or simple Scots dwelling in glens. Some people love that. Some people wave their bits of material in the air and dab their moist eyes. But it's all a bit embarrassing, isn't it? 
It's all a bit 13th century. It's all a bit silly. You're listening to The Herald Scotland, recorded on Friday the 28th of August 2020. Opinion by Hugh MacDonald The lessons Andy Murray can teach Scotland and the world. The idea that sports people should be held as role models has always been as preposterous as the notion of handing Donald Trump your dinner money to keep it safe. It's not that athletes are bad people. It's just that they never auditioned for the role of being very, very good people. In all my years of asking top sportsmen or sportswomen about their early years, I have yet to hear one say, Yes, I always dreamed of setting a moral tone for the youth of the nation, being without sin and then setting up a charitable foundation. Sports stars want to win. It's why their childhood is marked with monopoly boards flying through the air siblings with various hues of bruises and more tantrums than the president at a press briefing. It's why too that their lives are generally not to be envied. There may be a tawdry glamour in the lives of the top footballers, except when they're on holiday in Greece, but the elite athlete has endured a strange childhood, a sometimes desperate adolescence and an adult life whose fleeting contentment is tied to results which are destined to fade and sometimes quickly. The athlete knows too that they are condemned to die twice, with their exceptional powers waning at an early age. They justifiably fear the stripping of their physical prowess and the long, empty years they can presage. The athlete too does not live a life of contentment and fulfilment, which can disappear with the speed of Usain Bolt being chased by a particularly peckish cheetah a proposal for an event I pitched to the Olympic Organising Committee, incidentally, and was spuriously dismissed on health and safety grounds. The sports star has to be obsessed, though we will call it focus or commitment. He or she has to pretend to have a normal family, when it is obviously impossible. He or she has to affect concern about the ails or woes of others, when all that really matters is that twinge in his or her right calf, and will it prevent him or her playing in the Comfort Girdle Extra Stretch Open in Akron, Ohio? This is all part of a truth acknowledged by most athletes, certainly by the most reflective of them. They know who they are. They know their shortcomings. Yet they face the carping from those outside their world. They are decried when they are not articulate. Yet no one ever criticised Churchill, for his inability to get the football up and down over the wall from just outside the box. They are derided for their intellectual capacity, yet no one forensically and honestly examined the weakness of the Einstein forehand, particularly cross-court. They are condemned for their selfishness or lack of social concern, yet no one put Gandhi in the stocks for not improving his impossibly weak uppercut. The point I am labouring with all the subtlety of a gang of navvies and a fair Friday pub crawl is this. Great sports people offer lessons on how to be great at sports. And most of the lessons are useless to the mass of humanity because, basically, we not only do not have the talent, but, if we did, would balk at the rigours of a mental commitment and physical trial that would make lead roar on a slave galley seem like a jaunty cruise. 
So, sports people are not there to offer life lessons. But here's the twist. Sometimes they do. Andrew Barron Murray is spending most of August running around courts in New York after a small ball. It is hot, draining work, and he doesn't need the money or the acclaim. I know little about him, but enough to realise that he seeks validation only from the tightest of crews. But his extraordinary comeback from injury and return to elite tennis can offer some consolation to the wider world. It is this. There can be recovery. It may be difficult to glimpse in the depths of despair, but it can be there, pulsing weakly in the face of life's bitter blows. There can be a defiance too in the face of all opinion, whether medical or uninformed. There will be doctors who would have told Murray that the game was up and he should go home to count his money. But he wasn't quite ready. He is a competitor. He is a sportsman, for good and ill, in focus and in fight. He had to go on. It is a powerful message in the year of the virus, the time of the teetering job, the age of debilitating anxiety. There will be a time for quitting, but it's not quite yet. Not for Andy, and not for us. This article was by Hugh MacDonald. Herald Scotland recorded on Friday 28th of August 2020. Biffy Clyro on the buffoons who run the country and why nurses deserve to be paid more by Russell Ledbetter. For Biffy Clyro and their fans, Friday June 25, 2021 simply cannot come round quickly enough. That is the date of the Ayrshire Trio's special homecoming show at Glasgow's Bella Houston Park. The gig is certain to be a sellout and the intriguing bill also includes Youngblood, Frank Carter and the Rattlesnakes and Mercury Music Prize nominee Porridge Radio. The open-air show comes as the new album A Celebration of Endings has just topped the UK charts as well as attracting some of the best reviews of their long career. On one level then, things are going well for Simon Neal, James Johnson and Ben Johnson. On another, however, there is still much for them to be angry about. About the buffoons in charge, about the treatment of nurses, about bands that play it safe. A celebration of endings distills this anger into something bright and bombastic. We're living in a world right now in which politics cannot be ignored, drummer Ben Johnson said in an interview with Alex Green, the Press Association's entertainment reporter. We're not historically a political band and we're not about to become Rage Against the Machine. He pauses for a rumbling laugh. But I just think right now, living in this world, you cannot ignore the buffoons in charge and all the crazy stuff that is going on. If you don't sing about it, you're only lying to yourself because it's omnipresent. Ben was speaking just a week after he had reunited with his bandmates for their first rehearsal since lockdown. For the hard-touring outfit, the music industry's sudden grind to a halt was especially unsettling. The first few weeks were all over the place. A lot of fear, the 40-year-old admits. My regime went entirely out the window and I started putting on a bit of weight and sleeping crazy hours and all sorts of stuff. But once the novelty of that wore off, I got some more routine back in my life and things are fine now. Johnston, who had no formal music training, has spent lockdown going back to basics, practising on a drum pad and improving his technique. Lockdown has also affected the band in other, more unexpected ways. Hailing from Kilmarnock, Biffy Clyro are famous for their eccentric style of power rock, 
performing topless at every opportunity and for their love of Kilmarnock FC. Football was one of the immediate casualties of the pandemic, but now it has returned, Johnson appears to have fallen out of love with the game. I'm definitely missing the Kelly, he says. I really have missed the football, although weirdly since English football came back, Scottish football hasn't come back yet. I realise I've slightly fallen out of love with football. I don't really know what happened. I'm watching it going, this isn't as good as I remember, and it's really upsetting because I love my football. I think there are too many live games in a daily rate. I think that's just putting me off. Oh God, live football again. But no, I miss seeing my local team for sure. I miss going to my ground and shouting at guys in shorts. As you would expect, Johnson agrees that the arts need government support and worries about how the £1.57 billion rescue package for the sector will be divvied out. But he's equally concerned for the nurses, junior doctors and healthcare workers who have spent the last half year in the front line of the pandemic. I'm not one to get on my soapbox and start to worry about government stuff, he admits. There are more important things like nurses. They need to be taken care of. They need all the support in the world. They need to be paid twice as much, regardless of this pandemic. They need to be given free housing. They need to be given all the help, not turning up to food banks trying to feed their kids because they can't get a good enough wage as a nurse. That pisses me off. They are not given nearly enough support and this pandemic has shown that the people who are paid the least in the social structure are the people who need it the most. We need to take a long hard look at ourselves, think about that wealth gap and fix it. Despite their studio wizardry and penchant for oral experimentation, Biffy Clyro are at their heart a live band. If you see their energetic stage act you'll understand that this period away must have been painful. It's been heartbreaking says Johnson after a long sigh. I completely forget what it is I do for a job. That happens so quickly, you wouldn't believe it. Even a couple of months, like, am I in Biffy Clyro? Did we play these shows? It's hard to even remember. I miss live music so much. The feeling you get from playing live cannot be replicated in any other manner. I miss it intensely. I was so happy to get back in the practice room just this week with the boys. It's the first time we've played since lockdown. It's such a release. I've missed it heavily. He laughs at the suggestion that a celebration of endings is Biffy Clyro's most danceable album yet, but he agrees. We have really broad tastes. We like almost every genre of music. We like making ourselves a bit unsure. You should always slightly question your music. It should always be on the edge of, is this brilliant or terrible? I'm not sure, but certainly not safe. The last thing we want to do is make safe music and call it in. I hate bands that do that. We always want to be on the precipice, looking over the edge. A Celebration of Endings is out now, by Russell Ledbetter. Recorded from the Herald, 28th of August 2020. Rangers duo join Partick Thistle on loan as Ian McCall bolsters squad, Aidan Smith. Rangers duo Rhys Breen and Kieran Wright have joined Partick Thistle on season-long loan deals. Goalkeeper Wright joins the Jags having spent the latter part of 2019-2020 season with Aloha Athletic. The Scottish Youth International featured for the Wasps after joining in late January while also developing first team experience with Rangers Colts in the Tunnock's Caramel Wafer Challenge Cup. Breen has also impressed Ibrox and he is regularly trained with Stephen Gerrard's first team. He has yet to make an appearance for the senior squad his defensive talents have made him a regular under Graham Murty with the reserves. After adding the young pair to his squad, Firhill boss Ian McCall said, 
I'm delighted that we've managed to secure these two young players. Kieran will train with us tomorrow, then we'll be away for eight days with the Scotland under-21s. He is here to battle it out with Jamie Sneddon for the number one jersey. Reese has naturally left-sided and is very quick. Pace was a little issue when I came back to Fur Hill, and we've begun to address that with two or three of our signings. The last couple of seasons, I have been reasonably lucky with loans from Rangers and Celtic, and I wish these two lads all the very best in their time with us. Herald Scotland, recorded on Friday 28th of August 2020. Mary Quant, v Dundee Exhibition, Everything You Need to Know, by Teddy Jameson, Senior Features Writer. Mary Quant and a bunch of other pretty Chelsea birds have revolutionised fashion. John Crosby, Daily Telegraph, April 30, 1965. The V&A Dundee has reopened this week with a new show celebrating the work of 1960s fashion designer Mary Quant. Quant, born in Blackheath, London, became a household name in the 1960s as part of the youthquake that revitalised British culture in music, fashion and film. She may not have been the first designer to take hemlines above the knee, brackets the French couturier André Courage also has a claim, close brackets, but the very short skirt and shift dresses, more often than not modelled by Twiggy, became Quant's trademark. Her bobbed hair, designed by Vidal Sassoon, also added to Quant's recognition factor. She was also responsible for the skinny rib sweater and hot pants. Quant's designs grew out of her desire for a new look and new ideas of what it might be to be female. I grew up not wanting to grow up, she once said. Growing up seemed terrible. It meant having candy floss hair, stiletto heels, girdles and great boobs. To me it was awful. Children were free and sane and grown-ups were hideous. Her notions chimed with the times and as a result she did much to shape how the 1960s looked in the streets of Chelsea in the fashion magazines and weekend newspaper supplements of the time at least. Quant met her future husband Alexander Plunkett Green while studying illustration at Goldsmiths. He was from old money but very much a Soho bohemian. In 1950s London the couple were part of the much vaunted Chelsea set. Our friends and acquaintances were painters, photographers, architects, writers, socialites, actors, conmen and superior tarts, Quant said in her 1966 memoir Quant on Quant. In 1955, the couple, along with business partner Archie McNair, bought 138A Kings Road with plans to open it as a boutique with Plunkett Green's Bistro downstairs. Originally the boutique called Bazaar sold clothes Quant sourced herself from art school students, jewellers and milliners, very much a reflection of her own taste. When that proved successful and stock dwindled, she took to buying fabric from Harrods and made up her own designs with her friends in her bedsit overnight to sell in the shop the next morning. Quant's clothes were informal, often in bold colours, and she had an eye for reinventing traditional details. She also had a taste for new materials, including PVC, using it to create wet-look clothes. Her designs could be androgynous, taking familiar material designs and ideas from menswear and using them to her own ends. All the way through life, women had to dress the way the man in her life saw her, Quant pointed out. She was never allowed to dress the part of being her. I wanted to design clothes for real people. In 1962, she signed a deal with the American store chain JCPenney, 
and a year later she'd launched a new, cheaper diffusion line, Ginger Group. By the end of the decade, she was the country's most recognisable fashion designer, and it was estimated that up to 7 million women in the UK owned at least one of her products. She diversified into cosmetics, brackets the Daisy line, close brackets, and in the 1970s, interior designs, including carpets, bed linen and wallpaper for manufacturer ICI. Clothes are a statement about oneself or what one wants to be, Quant believed. It was an idea that she put into practice for herself. Mary Quant at V&A Dundee runs until January 17, 2021. For more information, visit vam.ac.uk forward slash Dundee forward slash Mary Quant by Teddy Jameson. Recorded from the Herald, 28th of August, 2020. Celtic boss Neil Lennon refuses to close door on Bowley Bulangoli return. Aidan Smith. Neil Lennon has refused to close the door on a possible return to training for Celtic defender Bowley Bulangoli. The Belgian fullback will go in front of an SFA panel today after he broke quarantine rules by travelling to Spain. Ahead of the hearing, his manager said, I can't comment on that. There will be the SFA one, then we'll have our own sort of in-house disciplinary and we'll take it from there. It has sort of dragged on a little bit now. We'll obviously have to look at that and see when and if he can come back in. Meanwhile, Lennon has told his one-away players to settle down and focus on the bid for 10 titles in a row. He added, we have a big year ahead of us. This is a difficult time of the year. As you know, people are unsettled. We want them to settle down and do what's best for the club and that means winning the league and trying to make the best of what's left of the European campaign. And that was this week's Herald. Thank you for listening. 